Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hello, friends. Welcome back. I've got an amazing show for you today, kind of a sequel to one I did earlier last year, and it tackles burnout and suicide and mental health with doctors. Our medical professionals are losing their minds and killing themselves, and it's horrible. There's a movement called Fight Burnout. My dear friend, Dr. Gabe Charbonneau, a rural health doctor from Big Sky Territory, Montana, has launched a movement called fightburnout.org. He was on the show about a year ago. We became very close friends. I became extraordinarily intimated into everything he was working on. And he happened to be in New York City recently for the Healthcare Burnout Symposium. Yes, there is a Healthcare Burnout Symposium. So he stopped by the studio with his dear friend and the chief operating officer of his company, Medicine Forward, Dr. Todd Otten. So it's Gabe and Todd and me in a room bitching about medical burnout and having an extraordinarily human discussion of the issues, the problems, the grassroots efforts to change things, and how you can get involved in making sure that these extraordinarily Hippocrates-driven humans have what they need to do their job so we can live our lives as best as we can. Man, you're in for a show. I'm thrilled they're here. Enjoy. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Out of Patience. There's no real formal intro today because these two doctors just showed up in my office I feel like I'm getting misdiagnosed and diagnosed at the same time. But returning champion, Gabe Charbonneau, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks, MZ. I'm uh, happy to be here. In real life this time. In real life. Right. You are joined by um, Todd Rotten. <laughs> no, that's Todd R. Otten, MD. You've been called Todd Rotten. Tell me you have. I, I have. And I actually used to tell patients uh, my last name is uh, Rotten without the R so they could get it correct. <laughs> God, that's fantastic. And I wait, wait. I, did your parents intentionally make your middle name R on like was that a goal of theirs? Uh, you know what? I never asked that question, but it's it's possible that that's the case. I'll have to I'll have to check back in with them. But I, I came to make sure I got a second opinion for misdiagnoses. Okay, I want to make sure that you're 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 sizing me up accordingly in all of my <laughs> <laughs> my house of cards health history. Yep. Uh, well, you're in town as of this. So so this show is going to air a few months, weeks after this conversation. But for the listeners, you're in town for a healthcare burnout summit, which A, I think is just cool that it exists in the first place. But burnout has, <clears throat> as I go through puberty, burnout, 
Kyle, keep that in. <laughs> Burnout, as I feel, almost become bastardized. Uh, it doesn't mean what it truly means. And you have been, well, Gabe, you have been a, a, a staunch voice for this, again, like this oft sort of uh, dismissed situation in this country. And again, you're on the show. We'll put a link to your conversation with me from the old show in the show notes. But let's just go over rural health guy, Montana, like blue sky, big sky, clean air, and yet rural fuckery. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it really, I mean, it really is burnout fuckery. I, I, I'm going to need to use that more often. Yeah, I mean, I, so where to start with burnout? I think it even... Let's start at the very at beginning. The beginning. Start at the beginning. No, I mean, it's, uh, for me, I, I lived burnout, as I think we talked about on the last show, and didn't have the words to really explain or understand what was going on. And, and so it was like... You know, only after bumbling through a lot of things in life and my own experience as this primary care doc and my wife also a family practice doctor and just the the difficult challenges that we were going through um, burnout became this th- this word that like helped make some sense out of the stuff that was so messed up and I think that the the thing that in particular interested me on my on my journey of discovery about burnout is that that not only did it help it make sense, but but there there now are and there there have been people who have have started to show some things that are like, what can you do about it? Like what kinds of things can actually make it better? And having seen this, this is like a huge problem that means like patients don't get what they need. Doctors are leaving and unhappy and killing ourselves um all literally hor- all yeah literally like, this is serious yeah serious all hor- horrible things but that there there are antidotes and we just need to we need to start paying attention to what those are and do and doing them so todd what's your uh, what's your stake in the game here you're an md oh yeah i my journey through burnout i've been through burnout too is horrendous and actually in the book, I really peel back the curtain. Wait, in the book. The book is called Ripple of Change. <laughs> Two close friends, a burned up physician, and, a, and his frustrated patient deploy razor-sharp insight, personal experience, and I'm reading this live, and irreverent humor to launch a – this is very long – to launch a sorely needed discussion on today's healthcare system. Breathe. Ripple of change. <laughs> Dr. Todd Rotten. Go ahead. Keep going. Well, there's a lot to talk about, right? Yeah. Um, no, uh, having, having gone through it, just that, that visceral, raw emotion and pain, and, and it's like having frayed nerves, and, and you're not your best, and, and clearly you're not giving your best for patients when that's going on. That was actually a big a part of why I'm doing what I'm doing now, which is working with Gabe and advocacy is and a big inspiration for writing the book as well. All right, so let's go back to the fundamental, maybe just the fundamentals of what it takes to even be a physician in the first place and the things that are being layered on top of you that encumber you from being a medical practitioner. Uh, Todd, why don't you start? How long's the show again? Uh, six <laughs> years. <laughs> Perfect. So, if, you know, medical school, you go, you go to college for four years, right? And then you go on to medical school, it's another four years. Residencies, anywhere from three to seven, depending on your specialty. And then you get in on years after that if you're doing a fellowship, right? So you've got plus or minus a decade of training behind you, building all this knowledge and information and what have you. You get out and you think things are going to be great. We're going to, you know, treat patients and improve this and, and help that and so on and so forth. The reality is you're buried in paperwork. 
you're buried in clerical burdens, and it's just one more thing. It's insane. It never stops. Well, has it been paperwork this whole time, or is the paperwork worse? <laughs> yeah, right. So that's, uh, I mean, I think that is such an important question. Like, why why is burnout this thing that's getting worse? It's, it's like paperwork wasn't invented yesterday. No. I mean, we know that. So part of it is that um, it's it's like this insidious, the, the best analogy I know of is like the frog boiled in water, like, like addition of one little thing here, one little thing here, one little thing here until all of a sudden the frog is boiled to death and dies. Like the, it's not that paperwork didn't exist, but there, there are just more things that are little boxes that the doctor has to check in order to essentially in a nutshell, get paid, have a job. Used to be simpler to get paid. Yeah. That's the gist. Used to be simpler to get paid. I mean, I guess there's other things like um, like CYA, right? Like you have to medical legally protect yourself. Now and, practice insurance, yes. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we can't forget the electronic medical record. No. I mean, that is... A, well, let's go back to... That's like a before, swear word. Wait, can we just go back to MR, medical records? Before it was electronic, was it easier when it was analog? Yes. I mean, I, so I have a, I have an example of that. So, um, Todd, you're going to resonate with this. So like a well child exam, we're both family practice doctors, a well child exam. When I went through training was this little three by five piece of paper and it had little boxes of like, okay, developmental milestones of what should be happening with the kid, their height, their weight, like two little lines for a narrative of what's going on with them. And essentially like a box that said like, this kid is thriving <laughs> next. <laughs> <laughs> Done. And, and the thing is, is like for most well child exams, that is like, I mean, in a nutshell, like it's about like spending some time with the kid, looking them over, making sure that they are on track with their development, that they're, um, that you're being a good doctor to them. But it's really about relating to this person. Now with our current system, like it has blown up into this like um, monstrosity of a checklist of stuff to go through for a simple well child check that used to be like a little three by five card. And and, it, and I'm not sure that it adds significant value to how kids are being cared for. I God, mean, it's a lot of it's related to data collection is why they're so long. I, I uh, had a note that was 11 pages long for one kid. This was a post-op check. Um, and essentially, there was one key sentence, patient is doing well post-operatively, buried in 11 pages of just right. not nonsensical stuff. Right. Is this also people can make money, the insurance companies or the PBMs or whatever? Well, the health, the health system needs to cover their ass for every single thing that is a box to check that didn't used to be a box to check? Oh, there's so many layers to that question. It, it, you're, you're accounting for everything under the sun to be capturable data. And whether or not it's germane to that particular visit, it doesn't matter. Somebody somewhere in some silo thinks it's important, so it's incumbent on the physician to check that box. Well, and I mean, thinking about that post-op check, like I'm remembering back in the back in the paper days, like a surgeon would round on a patient in that line that Todd just said, like patients doing well, it might say something like stitches out also, <laughs> like those, those two things. And like that was that was the entire note. Like this, we all wanted to be the surgeon because they got to write the nice, short, very concise to the point note. There was no fluff in there. They don't have time for that. But but then like so with the electronic medical record, like part of it's the requirements and another part of it is it's just too easy to copy and paste stuff. Right. And so, I mean, some some of this um, is a is a factor of like, look, you can just pull all this crap in there and it's a lot of work to actually like take out all the things that you don't need. So let's sure let's just pull it all in. And but then like what Todd said happens is like the only important thing is this one sentence you can no longer find. Is it possible to um, describe like a pie chart 
in terms of what percentage of the time is focused on an actual human being, what percentage is focused on just like paperwork and is there another is there a third slice of pizza to that pie chart? Well, I mean, there's the yeah. So you're gonna have to shut me up too. I think I didn't have coffee, but I'm still wired and hyped. <laughs> so, well, so I can attest on the radio that you are you are jittering. <laughs> Am I jittering? You are jittering. Uh, well, it's a good jitter. Calm me down. I'm just excited. We have two doctors here. Diagnose yeah. yourself. <laughs> um. So no, I mean, I just I think it's this is like the fun jitters is what I have. No, it's good. You're giddy. Yeah, I'm giddy. I like it. I'm giddy. I'm giddy. So and now I forgot what even the question is. Something about a pie chart. Pie chart. Yeah, pie chart. So <laughs> percentage so no, of no, time no, 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 no. documenting yeah. versus so the, yeah, the patient the, in front of you. Yeah, there's a study that said that like we spend two hours for every hour um, seeing patients on the and we spend two hours charting for every hour that you spend in face-to-face time with a patient. And um, and I don't know how that study was done, if that counts for the time that you're in the room staring at the computer instead of the person, because that seems like the, that should go into the paperwork time, right, right. not the actually spending time with the person. Is there anyone else that can fill this out for you, or are you the only one that has to sit at the desk and, and type this shit in? It depends on who you ask. Uh, fortunately, there's been some stuff that's come out from uh, CMS to to address that in terms of who's documenting what. But at one point in my career, I was told I had to document everything in the note. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I've got 15 minutes to see this patient. When do you expect all this to get done? So the reality of it is you're responsible for the note in the end. So if you have other individuals, whether it's the medical assistant or whether it's a nurse capturing some of the data, that can definitely offload some of the burden for sure. One other point to this, though, that, that we didn't discuss is what's called pajama time. A lot of our colleagues chart at home for two to four hours a night beyond their clinic day. You know, and that's uncompensated time that is very frustrating. It sounds like uh, like a snake eating its own tail in the sense that the less time you have with the patient, the worse off they might be. Yeah. So you might have more paperwork to fill out because they're worse off because you have no time to see them. <laughs> Is that a thing? <laughs> right. Did I just invent something? Yeah. <laughs> well, you might have, but I think it, it's it's absolutely right. Uh, it's absolutely right. I was so we here we are. We're at this burnout conference, and I was talking to someone who's a chief well being officer at the VA this morning, and their background is in motivational interviewing. And this woman was talking about how she was talking about how that in our conversations with patients, how quickly we jump into the problem solving part of the conversation where we're ready to try and help someone solve problems. But that's not necessarily where the person who's receiving care is at. And so we're, we're like talking past each other. And so because, because the gears aren't connecting, like your, your time is almost like you can waste it, right? And, and so, like, she was making the case that it doesn't have to take a lot of time, but, like, real human-to-human connection rapport needs to happen as, like, a foundational thing before you jump into the rest of this, like, doctoring stuff. All right. Well, Todd, when you first heard the term chief well-being officer, how much did you throw up in your mouth? <laughs> well, not a lot, because I actually think that there's a... Because I just, I just did gag a little a bit little, when I heard a that. A little bit. Sorry. Having had three of my colleagues um, who are no longer with us from self-inflicted things, you know, I, I really am a staunch advocate for well-being or wellness. And however you spin it, I, the reality is, is this, that there are a lot of physicians who are struggling to a great, great degree for a whole myriad of reasons. And so I'm actually a big fan of those um, types of initiatives, you know, whatever the vernacular is. So in our office, in, in, in you know, I go back to the book a bit, 
we I called it the, the book is called. Oh, no, yeah, no, all right. I'm sorry, I, do that again. <laughs> I, I, I can't help myself. You know, it hasn't been out that long, and I'm excited, what have you. But it, it's a good example. We called it the Office Utopia, and one of the things that we did is we made wellness a paramount, and and the the, the benefit of that was is. The staff wanted to be there. Retention was super high. We hardly had any turnover. And this is despite we only had six exam rooms for four providers, which is a complete bottleneck and shit show half the time. And the other part of it, the the real beauty of it was, is patients wanted to be there. And it was magical. People would come in and pour out their heart and soul, you know, and it was almost like family at times. We sang happy birthday to people occasionally. And it was amazing. Um, And so... I, I, maybe maybe I threw up a little bit, but <laughs> but not completely. How's that? So, so I can th- I can throw up, but then also like support that. Um, I think you I'm, also know what antimatics to take to not do that. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> Todd, will you <laughs> write me for some Zofran, please? I, uh, yes, I'm still I still have those those credentials. <laughs> no, the um, I mean here the the reason for throwing up is the like why are we in the situation that you need a chief well being officer? I mean, how about the organization just creates a reasonable workplace. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to have a chief well-being officer. You have people doing their jobs in a place that supports them. They're well-supported, well-staffed, respected, heard. Uh, They feel valued, all those things. Like, I don't think it's rocket science, and it shouldn't necessarily require a chief well-being officer. However, the world that we live in does seem to require a chief well-being officer. And part of what they do is they, they help get the corporate healthcare machine the data that it needs to do anything right it's like we can't do anything without without data you can't just talk about stuff anymore and solve problems you have to have a committee and a process and a lead point person and if they're not a chief then they're not paid attention to so that's why you got to have if you care about well-being you got to have a chief of well-being I can't not get Dabney Coleman's character in office space out of my head right now because of that that that's I'm thinking he just shows up and says, Oh, what do you do all day? I'm important. I bring this over there. <laughs> right. Well, and doesn't this speak to the that that graph I think someone was referencing this morning about like the growth in in the healthcare workforce, that the the growth of people that provide care is like not a very not a very steep curve, but the growth in healthcare administrators is like this exponential curve. It's like it's like 20x from the it's, 1970s. Yeah. yeah. So 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 there's a part of me that thinks about that and this is like the throw up part is yeah. like so we just added one more person to this 20x just bloat that is not band-aids. about right and all a, these band-aids. And what we don't have is enough time to spend face to face with the patient in front of you actually giving a shit about them. You must really care about being a doctor. <laughs> What's wrong I de- with you? I, I dedicated a huge part of my life to it because I, th- I really think it's important. I'm sorry, Gabe. I was documenting. Can you repeat all that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break uh, with our sponsor, who's not really our sponsor. I just have to say I was on Zofran back in the 90s. They really, really did help me not throw up. Not a sponsor, but like antimatics are really good. Really, really good. And maybe Dabney Coleman will give a shout out during the mid-roll. I have no idea. But we'll be, we'll be right back. <laughs> Amazing. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Softball question for both of you. I think I asked you this on the other show. Everybody on that airplane, and someone said, is there a doctor in the house, and you were the doctor in the house? Yes. Tell me. So we were flying from Detroit to Phoenix for a 40, uh, 40th birthday party with uh, some uh, siblings and what have you, and <clears throat> about an hour into the flight, you get that dreaded call, is there a doctor on board? And I sheepishly raise my hand and, and walk up there. Well, yeah, there was a patient who happened to be one of the uh, flight attendants, who had a uh, medical history that he really probably shouldn't have been working, who had some chest pain, some shortness of breath, was kind of looking okay. So we gave him some aspirin, put him on some oxygen, start talking to the, um, the liaison with the airline. And this goes on for 20, 30 minutes. Vitals are getting progressively worse. Um, I went back and talked to the, um, again, the medical leader. And uh, I said, I'm having a hard time hearing you as the conversation went. And he gently reminded me that I was on an airplane and I gently said, no shit. I think I called you. (laughs) (laughs) So so fast forward, we ended up diverting to um, Albuquerque, I believe, um, because the guy looked terrible. He, long as short, I gave my cell phone. He had a massive pulmonary embolus. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. He, I mean, he could have died on the flight. And so with the air pressure and all that stuff too, right? It was, it was surreal. And the really cool part of that um, story is no less than 10 or 15 people who I just wrecked their day by diverting of the flight. And oh, by the way, we had to get a new flight attendant because it was the flight attendant that right. was going to the hospital. Right, right. But they thanked me, including the captain. And that was, that was a very special moment. I'll be, although I didn't want to have any part of it. Appreciating you not having someone die on a flight is probably a thing people should appreciate. I used to, um, <clears throat> as a medical student, I used to be totally afraid of uh, being that guy on the airplane and having no idea what I was going to do to help someone when they asked that question. And so it's like, we got to hurry up and learn something in medical school <laughs> or get some skills. So if they ask, you're not going to be this worthless <laughs> person that doesn't have a clue. Right. Um, so so this is, this is slightly tangential, but um, d- d- did I tell you about Delta's... Uh, Delta's sort of uh, not a sponsor. 
not a sponsor. Uh, they're yeah, they're 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 unspoken uh, secret service doctor program. No. Oh, this is good. This is good. They're gonna come after us now because well, we're disclosing this. So I don't know. I mean, I think the thing is, you might have to decide whether you can tell this story or edit it out. But um, but this is one. So doctors on airplanes. This is my best doctor on an airplane story. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So um, we only have like five minutes left. No, do, I'm kidding. Do we? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not. A, it's not. It doesn't have to be a super long <laughs> no. story. But um, so I so I was flying from. Montana, where we live, to L.A. to do some consulting work. Back to this doctor burnout stuff. We were trying to help with um, help doctors with the electronic medical record with some um, some uh, basically macros, which are little computer programs where you say something and it does work for you, so the doctor can hopefully focus more on the patient kind of stuff. Anyway, at Salt Lake, uh, my colleague and I got upgraded to first class, and um, and it was like this weird moment of like, what's going on? Why did that happen? Don't ask a lot of questions. I go onto the plane and just kind of making my way to my seat, see this guy in a big white cowboy hat. He's got a blue blazer on and his like USA pin, uh, still not totally paying attention, like excuse myself, walk next to him, sort of going through my stuff and getting things. And uh, the flight attendant uh, comes through the aisle and says, uh, so, Mr. Charbonneau, how are you doing today? And I'm like, oh, good. I'm like, oh, so in first class, they know your name. I don't fly first class. Maybe, right. they, maybe they do. Maybe they do. I don't know. Um, I'm still not paying attention. I'm like in my own world. And then he says, so, uh, Mr. Cheney, can I get you anything? Yeah, I have a I have a picture on my phone I can show you after this. So they sat me next to Dick Cheney. This is after he's had his heart transplant. And they sat my friend who is a nurse practitioner in front of him. Unbeknownst to us, we have still to this day no idea how any of this stuff happened. Doesn't and he have a valveless heart? It, <laughs> it is. I don't know what all he has. It's like a rotary engine or something. And I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> but it was the fact that, like, you know, they 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 clearly had a plan to have him surrounded by healthcare mm-hmm. professionals. And at the end of the flight, there was a there was somebody who knew more about what was going on than me. There was a kid that came up to him and wanted to talk to him, and that's when the Secret Service like appeared out of nowhere. These big tall guys. I'm like, where where were those Wait, guys? You hadn't noticed the F-18 Tomcats, pr- yeah. you know, on the sides of the airplane at the same time. <laughs> like I said, so I was so oblivious. I got to my hotel that night and called my wife, and I'm like, guess what happened? This random thing. I got upgraded to first class and sat next to Dick Cheney, and she's like, honey, come on. Like, how random is that? That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty. Let's shift the conversation to the the team that you work with in your office. The coordinators, the receptionists, uh, the the billing people. You know, whether you have, what, five or 25 people, you're running a business, too. You're tip of the spear. That's another thing you have to manage, correct? That depends. If you're employed, a lot of that part of the logistics is taken – taken elsewhere. If you're in private practice, though, absolutely, it's on you, for sure. Are you in private practice? I actually don't see patients. I told my uh, previous employer where they could stick it when they started making really bad decisions. Bravo. Bravo. Have you stuck it somewhere, Gabe? <laughs> Not in the same way. Not in the same way that Todd has. And I and I am employed. And um, so, I mean, I think that the days of private practice, uh, that, that's actually one of the driving factors for people moving to being employed is the the ability to take care of all that stuff has gotten so complex that it's driven a lot of people to just throw up their hands and say, I can't do this. Help me. Is that a genuine diaspora? Or is there data on how many 
doctors are fleeing to private practice? You know, it's been interesting. Uh, the trends are interesting. So there's been there's been an ongoing trend towards consolidation, they call it, um, of like more and more practices getting absorbed by like large systems, hospital systems, large employers. Um, but like, I don't I don't know that that I can speak to the, the like how this whole trend is working. But there's also this movement of you might know about direct care where there are, there are doctors who are like really fed up with the system and like they don't want to be jerked around by like how things are paid for. So they basically like set up a subscription service and say like pay me 50 bucks a month and um, and we don't take insurance. And so we're just going to like go back into concierge. Yeah, concierge ness And I th- that whatever. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that's a, um, there are people that are so passionate about that. Um, I definitely think it's a piece of the puzzle. that's interesting. It's like, so that it really gets at the question of like, what would happen if you get insurance out of the conversation? Um, I think that's the good part of it. Um, the, the challenge is like, you know, does that solve enough of the healthcare problem? Can everyone afford a subscription, for example? Right. Well, interestingly, to piggyback on that a little bit with direct primary care or DPC as opposed to concierge, which is a little bit different, there's actually some savings to be had there, about 20% cheaper, I believe, because you're cutting out a lot of that administrative layer. You're not having to send out bills and and have a revenue cycle and all those other things. It's you and the patient, um, you know, your patient panel is smaller. Physician happiness tends to be higher in those circumstances as well. So there's well, a lot. That, that sounds a, important. Yeah, there's a big movement towards that. <laughs> the fact that physician happiness should even be a conversation in and of itself is ridiculous. I mean, it's so interesting. You should be miserable all the time. It's so interesting. So we were just talking. My, my great grandpa was a doctor. I never met him. Um, but he was married to his job. And um, so so I think this is relevant to this conversation about burnout. I mean, that guy worked insane amount of hours and loved it and and did that until he died and never saw his family. So they didn't love it. But he but but he did. And and that's what's something that's different is like, you know, doctors aren't scared of hard work. Something has changed. It's not just about hard work. Part of it's also about not having control. Well, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's just all the other stuff. You know, we talked about maintenance of certification recently. Everyone just keeps piling additional things for you to do that aren't, that don't involve seeing a patient. I loved seeing patients. It was a joy. I mean, my days would fly by when it was mainly patient care. But when you started to factor in all those other things, that's when the misery would start to creep in. All right. Let's talk about fightburnout.org, which is, I, I espouse this. Everywhere that I go, I have a shirt. I, it's like, <laughs> I love it. I could talk to anybody and like, you, you need to check this out because it's so important. Yeah, it's the radio and you're doing your Superman I, shirt. I know. I just realized hey, that was a reflex. I'm just, can you see my shirt over the microphone? He's got the fight burnout <laughs> shirt with the Superman pullover, pull out the, the shirt, whatever. Like, this is such an important error that I started the show. I don't think it gets enough attention. What is being done? Yes, there's a burnout summit. That's happening uh, tomorrow as of this recording. What is happening that's fomenting, that's helping people channel this anger? No one should die because of this shit. That's terrible. Give me some hope. Oh, man. Give you some hope. I, that, that is like a hardball question right there. Yeah. That is a totally hardball question. Do you want to take a crack at that, Todd? Yeah, sure. I think one of the things that provides some hope is people are starting to talk about it that are actually having gone have had gone through it like myself like Gabe 
Um, there's plenty of articles out there. In the past, people would just compartmentalize and keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. And that's all well and good till it's not, right? So the fact that you've got some vulnerability and people bringing these voices out there, hopefully it inspires and empowers other people to do the same and to make change. You know, and that, that's what really needs to happen. We need we need massive systemic change to improve this. The, the days of it all just being on the individual clinician are, need, are, are gone in, in, in a large part. Right. My nonprofit hat kicks in when I hear it. Like advocacy is not awareness. Action yeah. is advocacy. Yes. Yes. So, okay. So, uh, and uh, to piggyback on what Todd said about giving hope. So, um, one of the talks we were at this morning, um, referenced the, the surgeon general put out, um, a large paper in 2022 that was about, uh, the importance of workforce well-being in healthcare and the, the, the fact that a national leader like that cares enough to, to put that into the public conversation means that, um, means that, the, it, we are getting awareness at levels where it matters that hopefully can be translated into action that it makes things different. Um, so I think I think that that gives me hope. One thing that's always given me hope is that I I think there are and I I probably said this last time because it's just a core belief of mine. There are so many more good people everywhere, like inside of medicine, but just in general in the world than there are people who are trying to make things shitty that I think if we can get our systems to, to serve humanity instead of like whatever it is that's going on, it'll, I, I just believe that we're not going to stay stuck here forever because of the, the, my belief in the goodness of humanity overall. So to wrap up, I, Todd, I noticed one of the chapters in your book is called do no harm, which is the Hippocratic oath. Are you doing harm by accident because the system is encumbering you to not help the patients the way they need to be helped? With, without a doubt that occurs. Hundred percent. I and I would see it almost daily where things that shouldn't have happened did, for just a whole multitude of reasons. So um, we need to get back to do no harm, and really we need to get back to people over profits. I'm sorry. Say that again. What country is this? <laughs> yeah. Where do we live? <laughs> well, Yay. if we, we want to keep going, I, I just heard something where we're gonna. I think in four or five years, maybe it was be up to like seven trillion dollars in spending on healthcare. Oh my gosh, it was it was depressing. Yeah, this people over profits thing is like such a I mean that's such an interesting conversation. It's like to me so crazy that we even are are Okay, profit and health. Like how how are those things supposed to fit together? Right. Why is it even a question of which should come first, right? Like I don't I do not understand if you're a society like why there should be a choice between whether profit is more important or people's well-being is more important. All right. This is one of those things where I don't know if it's true, but I want to believe it's true. I want to wrap up full circle to your your accidental vice president story. Uh, this is one of those like where I don't know if it's true, but I want to believe it's true. Makamore Sicko, you know, take that movie or leave that movie. But there's an opening scene where he talks about the origins of the HMO and the PPO. And it all started with Kaiser Permanente, uh, I think Preston Scott Bush and Dick Cheney. And Nixon were the ones that said, hey, let's fuck everyone over and privatize healthcare. That was when profits, and yeah, I could be wrong. Someone fact check this for me. Leave it in the comments that don't exist on a podcast, by the way. No comments on a podcast. Good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) Tweet me at go fuck yourself. (laughs) Whatever, whatever. You're right. This is a country that's focused on 
profits over purpose. We've seen that in every single sector out there. It is completely ridiculous and egregious. And as I as I sit from my insurance fuckery mug and your healthcare fuckery mug over there, Todd, yeah, we're sitting at a precipice where we need another revolution is a difficult word these days in yeah. society. Yeah. But I think what you started just had to be started in the first place. I mean, it's the the idea of a public good. I mean, one of the one of the places that I was a couple of weeks ago was Glacier National Park. And national parks are a public good. It's it's beautiful nature that benefits all of us as a society to protect it and to take care of it. It's not there for profit. No one is saying, please make Glacier National Park profitable, right? That's just not even in the conversation. And yet we value it because Teddy Roosevelt, right? Yeah, I said, think it was him. Said this is important. Like we should value this as a country. So why can't we have other things that matter that we can say this matters, we're going to invest in it. But it doesn't necessarily have to be profitable. Todd's going to get sick of me talking about the fire department. Like if the fire department had to be profitable to go put out fires, like how well is that going to work? So why is people's health any different? I just can't like my head doesn't wrap around that. What a fabulous, positive way to end the conversation. All right. I'm going to wrap up right now by reminding people that these two doctors just showed up. You've been diagnosing me the whole time. I'm looking at your eyes. I know there's something wrong with this guy. I've got a list. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I want to know how many notes you take when you go to bed at night in your pajama time about your time with Matthew Zachary. That's great. All right. Dr. Todd R. Otten. (laughs) (laughs) Rotten in some circles. You're never living that down. Ripple of Change is the book. We'll put a link to it in the description. Returning champion Gabe Charbonneau. You have so many credentials, but just you are the king of fightburnout.org. Thank you so much. More to come. This is such an important, critical conversation that is not getting the attention it needs. And I'm thrilled to bring this to my listeners uh, so you can take act. And I'm thrilled to bring this to my listeners, to you, you, the listeners, you guys, to get pissed and go do something and help fight back. Gentlemen, thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a production of Matthew Zachary Worldwide. The executive producer is Matthew Zachary. It is mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome wherever you get your podcasts. If you have guest suggestions or would like to learn more about sponsorship opportunities, email podcast at matthewzachary.com. For more information about Matthew Zachary and Matthew Zachary Worldwide, visit matthewzachary.com.